Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That is one of the most quoted lines from one of the most quoted speeches ever delivered in the country. But in recent years, the line has begun to be used in ways that might not be fully consistent with what Dr. King had in mind. It has often been cited by those who oppose the continued use of affirmative action programs in college admissions and other settings. The constitutionality of affirmative action programs has long been the subject of litigation, one that the Supreme Court has addressed a number of times. And while many thought the issues were settled, that is clearly not the case. This term, two cases were argued before the court, one involving Harvard and the other involving the University of North Carolina. So how do we get here? And more importantly, where might we end up and why? We're lucky today to be joined by University of Virginia law professor Scott Ballinger, a former clerk to Justice Scalia and an experienced Supreme Court advocate. Scott was a critical part of the legal team in two of the court's previous affirmative action cases. Good morning, Scott, and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Scott, can you share with the audience a bit of the history of the court's jurisprudence on this subject dating back to Bakke? Well, the, the modern story really starts with a, a late 1970s challenge to the admissions plan at the University of California Davis Medical School, which set aside 18 spots for minority applicants. And the Supreme Court basically split 4-4-1 in that case. The conservative justices said you can't have any kind of, of affirmative action in college admissions or medical school admissions. The liberal justices led by Thurgood Marshall said that you, you could consider race in uh, school admissions in order to redress past societal discrimination. And then Justice Powell wrote a lonely opinion, you know, only for himself, in, in which he said, I, I agree with the conservatives that colleges and, and medical schools can't do affirmative action to redress society discrimination. Um, but I think that universities have a, an important interest in the diversity of their student bodies, an educational interest. And as long as they are, are considering that in a sort of holistic way that doesn't make race the pri primary component of the admissions process and treats every applicant as an individual, it's okay. And he pointed to a brief that, that Harvard had filed um, in the case talking about the way that they, that they did things. So for, for a long time, from the, the late 1970s to the early um, 2000s, universities sort of assumed that Justice Powell's opinion only for himself in the Bakke case um, was the law. And that was challenged in a, a pair of, of cases involving the University of Michigan, um, one a challenge to the law school's admissions plan, which is basically the same as the Harvard plan that uh, Justice Powell had endorsed in the Bakke case. Um, and the other was a challenge to the University of Michigan undergrads admissions policy, which was more of a point system, you know, 10 points for being a Michigan resident, certain number of points for playing a tuba, certain number of points for race, right? And it spit out relatively mechanical outcomes. And the Supreme Court took those two cases up, um, and it basically said that what the law school was doing, you know, the Harvard plan for Bakke um, was fine but that what the undergrad school was doing was not, that you, you could not attach any sort of mechanical um, or numerical importance to race in the process. But as long as you were considering every applicant as an individual um, and you cared about the compelling 
educational benefits of diversity in a truly holistic way, right? Not just race, but you know, we want to have people from all over the country and we want to have people with different views and we want to have tuba players and violin players and, and all the rest um, that you are allowed to make limited consideration of race um, in that respect. Um, but Justice O'Connor's vote was critical to the, the decision in that uh, case. And Justice O'Connor put down a caveat that uh, that it had been about 25 years since the Bakke case. Um, and Justice O'Connor said, I expect that as the qualifications of minority applicants improve in 25 years, it won't be necessary to do this anymore. So, Scott, you kind of took us through the history of some of those decisions that have been before the Supreme Court. But I want to take this back a little bit farther in saying, what is affirmative action and why are we fighting for it? Where is this laid out? Well, the the original uh, idea, you know, came in the in the 1960s and, and early 1970s that, you know, after 400 years of slavery and, and uh, explicit legal discrimination, um, simply forbidding discrimination in the public sphere in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you, you know, wasn't enough. It wasn't going to um, change our society as quickly um, as necessary. And so people started talking about, well, can we take affirmative action to redress, you know, societal disparities and to try to integrate, you know, for example, fields that had been, you know, previously segregated by law. There were virtually no, you know, black doctors or black lawyers, um, you know, in a later era, you know, very few women in, in certain fields. Um, and that that sort of effort of, you know, going beyond just forbidding discrimination and making sort of positive efforts to uh, to bring people in has come to be known as affirmative action. If you read the the Labor Department's regulations about uh, affirmative action, you know the concept includes, for example, recruiting and outreach. You know if you uh, if you are not getting you know minority applicants for a job category or women applying for a job category, and you want to go out and and you know recruit them and make clear that you're receptive, that too is a form of affirmative action. But in more recent years, uh, people have come to to use that phrase mostly to refer to the idea of giving underrepresented minority students a bit of a leg up in college admissions. And then one more point of clarification is that does the Civil Rights Act of 1964, does that go on top of the 14th Amendment? Is that what helps bolster all of this? Well, well, it does. I mean, there's, so there's several sections of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. One of them applies to universities, including private universities, that accept federal education money. Right. And, um, and another Title seven applies to private employers and bans discrimination in private employment. Um, so the, you know, technically, the Equal Protection Clause applies only to the government. Um, the Civil Rights Act extends these rules to private entities. And Scott, in our history lesson, we, we were talking about Michigan. Um, is there anything else we should touch on before we talk about what happened this term? Well, there were a couple of, of cases challenging the University of Texas's uh, admissions policies a, a few years back that, that sort of um, were resolved on on unusual grounds, both because the the parties had not challenged Grutter versus Bollinger and, and asked the court to overrule it, and because Justice Scalia died uh, in the middle. But the the main thing that you know you would take away from those cases is it, it's not a vice 
if an affirmative action plan at a college is fairly limited. The plaintiffs in the Texas cases were basically saying that the University of Texas is doing so little affirmative action that the game isn't worth the candle and they shouldn't be allowed to do any. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, you know, modesty is a virtue, not a vice. Um, and the other thing that the court said that's important is the University of Texas had adopted this um, admissions policy of admitting the top 10% of every high school in Texas. Um, and that filled about 80% of the class. And one of the issues was whether they were still entitled to engage in affirmative action as to the other 20% of the class when they were getting reasonable diversity from the, te the Texas 10% plan. Um, and the Supreme Court basically said, you know what, the 10% the, the plan is not you know, all that great. It's not the be all end all of college admissions. And it's not even really race neutral. Because we all know that the reason that that the Texas legislature forced that plan on the University of Texas was to engineer a particular racial result. Um, and in that context, it's not more race neutral to build your entire admissions policy around a, a sort of gimmick like admitting the top 10% of every high school class um, than to just consider everyone holistically as an individual and consider race modestly um, in that process. And that takes us to this term. What were the cases involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina that the court took up? Well, so so there are two new challenges to the admissions policies at, at Harvard and UNC that are, are different from the recent Texas cases in several ways. One of them being that, of course, the composition of the Supreme Court has dramatically changed. Um, another being that the plaintiffs in those cases are explicitly asking the Supreme Court to overrule the University of Michigan cases and change the law, which didn't happen in the Texas cases. Um, and, and also, and this has you know, gotten a lot of press, there, there was an allegation in the Harvard case that Harvard was actually discriminating against white, against Asian applicants in favor of white applicants. If that were true, it would be a violation of the University of Michigan precedent. I mean, there, there's just no justification for that. They had a trial, and, and for what it's worth, the district court uh, found, as a matter of fact, that Harvard was not discriminating against uh, Asians in favor of, of whites in that process. Um, but but that you know allegation has colored the whole course of, of this litigation. When I looked at past cases that were arguing this issue, um, you know, there were different names involved. But when I look at the two on the docket this year, they're both brought about by students for fair admissions. Who are they? Uh, it, it's a group of conservative activists um, led by a guy named Edward Bloom um, and, and um, the, the recently departed Will Consovoy, uh, who uh, sadly died the other day, um, who, who just have made it a, um, you know, a, a mission to try to get the Supreme Court to change the law in this area and have, have brought case after case, always under you know, a slightly different theory, but, but they you know, will not rest until the Supreme Court overrules Scrooter versus Bollinger. Scott, I know you listened to the argument. What did you derive from the argument about where you think the court might go with this effort to overturn Bollinger? Well, I, I think that most observers think that the Supreme Court is going to, you know, in, in name or form at least, overrule the Grutter decision and, and say that diversity in higher ed is not a compelling interest justifying consideration of race as such. Um, but I, I think... The questioning also revealed how very difficult it's going to be for the Supreme Court to draw lines that actually dramatically change anything. 
both the plaintiffs and the conservative justices in that case acknowledged repeatedly that it is perfectly fine for universities to care about things like grit and resilience and overcoming adversity um, and perfectly fine for them to consider an applicant's race as it bears on those things and on their experience um, mm -hmm. so long as race is not considered just for its own sake right well you know the university of michigan law school would have told you back in gruder versus bollinger itself that that's exactly what they were doing that they never consider race just for for its own sake and there was nothing mechanical um, about it and everyone is is considered as an individual and you know they've made that the the plaintiffs made that concession because there's there's really no way to avoid considering race in that sense I and mean, we have a society in which race is important and so so here's the story I like to tell. A few years ago, when I was living in Washington, there was a, a story in the Washington Post about a young man who, a white uh, young man who was elected president of the Black Student Alliance at Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax, which, it, which is a, 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 one of the best public high schools in the country. It's a very well-known school. Um, and, and there was a great story behind it. It was really heartwarming. Um, and the reaction of, of everyone that I knew in, in Washington, among other things, was, oh, gosh, that kid's getting into college wherever he applies, right? Um, and appropriately so, because he's obviously a bridge builder, you know, just a, a terrific, terrific story, right? Well, if you think about it, you, you can't be excited about that young man and not equally excited about the, the young black woman who, who was, you know, elected president of the student body at her otherwise all-white private school in Birmingham, right? It's the same story. And you can't talk about or think about what is really interesting about either of those applicants in a manner completely divorced from their race. And if you and if you give credit to the white kid at Thomas Jefferson and not to the young black woman um, at the private school in Birmingham, you are you are discriminating against the young black woman on the basis of her race in your admissions process. And obviously, you can't you can't do that. So once you understand that and you you know you accept that as the plaintiffs and the conservative justices seem to have accepted, that race is inevitably going to play a role in any holistic admissions process. You, you know, I, I'm not sure what the, the court is going to be able to articulate as, you know, exactly the rule that, that they want to, to lay down that will be all that different from what elite universities are doing now. And, you know, I think it's, it's also sort of important to recognize that while several of the justices, including the Chief Justice and, and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, are, are on record going back, you know, 20 or 30 years, that they are, are you know, completely opposed to affirmative action in admissions. You now, several of our new justices, uh, you know, have never said very much about about this. And you know, Justice Barrett taught at Notre Dame for a long time. You know, she may have views about the role that that diversity played in in the student body at Notre Dame. Justice Kavanaugh is is justly very proud of of his um efforts to you know seek diversity in his law clerk hiring so so his views on this may be a little bit more nuanced than some of the other conservative justices too and so we could end up with a situation just as we started in the Baki case with justice powell back in 1978 with a decisive rule being supplied by a concurrence written by justice barrett or justice kavanaugh um that that articulates an, a, a nuanced view of all of this Okay, let's, uh, as a business show, does it make sense to talk about the implications of these cases on affirmative action in the commercial context? Well, I, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about that, honestly. So, 
Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 bans discrimination in private employment. Um, one gets the sense that a, a lot of employers have proceeded on the assumption for the past you know, 20 years or so that the, the education cases apply to them equally and that, that, that they are entitled to consider race for the purposes of constructing a diverse workforce, for example. Um, and it's not at all clear that that is true. There are some older Supreme Court cases under Title VII that suggest that affirmative action to remedy manifest imbalances in traditionally segregated job categories may be okay. Um, but in its more recent affirmative action in employment cases, the Supreme Court ha has not even cited those old cases. Um, the Supreme Court's most recent decision, Re Ricci versus DiStefano, ruled in favor of a group of white firefighters who were claiming that it was employment discrimination against them for their fire department employer to um, abandon a test that had had a, a disparate impact on black applicants. Um, and the court didn't even mention the old affirmative action cases. And it, there was a, a case, um, the Wygant case, that was about a, a preferential layoff policy that a public school system had um, under which um, minority teachers would be laid off last because there were so few of them. And one of the arguments that the school system made was that we really need the few minority teachers that we have as role models for our minority students. And the Supreme Court just categorically rejected that argument. You know, if you think about it, that argument is sort of akin to the diverse student body, you know, arguments that the Supreme Court accepted in the University of Michigan cases on the higher ed side. So the Supreme Court has never been as receptive to affirmative action in private employment as it has been in um, in university admissions. And I think you can you can count on, you know, whatever rule emerges from the current cases, it will not be more favorable to employers than than to universities. In all likelihood, it will be significantly less favorable to employers than to universities. During the decision that they'll make on the two cases before them, does that automatically impact the business world, or does a separate case need to be tried in order for those um, rules to change? Well, if the Supreme Court says that even in the higher ed context, there is no compelling interest in in considering race for the purposes of, of diversity, then it will become substantially harder for employers to rely on the assumption that that they can do anything similar, right? Because they've been basically been relying on the, the higher ed cases. Um, and if the higher ed cases go away, it becomes a much you know heavier lift. There are some lower court decisions that have indicated in in you know particularly compelling contexts like police departments say that you know police departments have a really strong interest in making sure that their police forces reasonably reflect the community that they will have to police because otherwise it's it's you know impossible to to engage in good policing right and there are some lower court decisions that say you know yeah in that circumstance we understand a police department wanting to engage in sort of diversity um, related consideration of race in hiring um and and it's possible that 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 sort of reasoning might survive what the supreme court does in the the higher ed cases but it's not guaranteed as we were prepping for the interview you had mentioned that with regards to employment and affirmative action it's much more hostile. Why is that? And and who? Yeah, who's hostile with whom? Well, I, I just mean that that the Supreme Court's interpretation of Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, has been much less forgiving 
um, to private employers, then its interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause has been in the higher ed affirmative action cases. And, you know, it, it, it is perfectly possible as a lawyer to have the, um, the idea that, you know, Congress meant to forbid all discrimination in private employment um, in Title VII, um, even if the Constitution doesn't do the same. We've been talking with Scott Ballinger about the Supreme Court's recent cases that are coming up with respect to affirmative action on this Martin Luther King Day. Scott, thanks for joining us. As things develop, we hope uh, you'll be willing to come back and help us understand further. Thank you very much. The pending Credit Card Competition Act could end Visa and MasterCard's longstanding monopoly over how transactions on credit cards issued under their brands are routed for processing. Credit card swipe fees in the United States are currently the highest in the industrialized world. The Credit Card Competition Act was introduced to Congress in July, and its bipartisan sponsors are hoping for action in 2023. Over 1,800 merchants and over 200 merchant trades associations have shown their support for the legislation through letters submitted to lawmakers to the mer by the Merchant Payment Coalition. Joining us this morning to help us understand this is MPC Executive Committee member and National Association for Convenience Stores General Counsel, Doug Cantor. Doug, thanks for joining Mountain Money this morning. Thanks for having me on. Let's begin with you helping us understand how credit card processing systems work and what types of fees are charged every time we use a credit card to pay for goods or services. Well, most people don't see how this processing happens at all. And to some extent, that's a good thing. You don't want all the complexity, but a store or a restaurant where you go to make a purchase has a processor they work with. All of us as consumers have a bank or maybe a credit union that gives us our credit card. And then in the middle of those two, there is a network. Visa and MasterCard are by far the biggest ones and the ones that we know. All they do is connect the merchant's processor with the bank that issues the credit card. And that's great. The problem is all of those folks along the way take a fee out of how much we pay. And the network, Visa or MasterCard, sets the amount that the consumer's bank charges the store. So those banks that compete on most of the fees they charge don't compete on this one. It's essentially cartel-like behavior and means these prices get higher and higher. And, and what kind of amounts are we talking about that Visa and MasterCard dictate to the merchants? I'm sorry, to the, to the, to the issuing card people. It averages about two and one quarter percent of every transaction on their cards, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up to huge money, just about $140 billion overall every year. And, you know, as you describe it, and, and given the dominance of Visa and MasterCard in the marketplace, you sort of want to take a step back and go, why, why hasn't this been taken care of with existing antitrust legislation? You know, it should have been, and there have been uh, a number of litigation cases over time. In fact, the, the antitrust division at the Department of Justice has brought about as many cases in the payment sector as in any other over the years. And there's been antitrust litigation pending in New York on these issues for 17 years now. <laughs> but that's just the problem. This stuff takes forever. 
So you gave us, you know, who the players are. We've got the processor, we've got the network, which Visa and MasterCard has a, a large monopoly over, and then we have the bank or the credit card issuer. Talk to me a little bit about this network. How have they been able to hold um, kind of this as their own? Well, what's interesting is Visa and MasterCard started really as associations of their bank members. And so it was all those banks acting together to say, hey, we're going to do this and set these fees and collect them. Uh, now, both Visa and MasterCard have become independent companies since then, but they see their, their real customers as those banks and they market to them by saying, hey, we'll give you higher and higher fees, which, as you know, in most markets, you get more business by reducing your prices to attract customers. It's just the opposite for those networks. And uh, my, our understanding is that the U.S. market is different than some of the other industrialized worlds. Are, are fees typically lower in Europe and in Asia? Yes, the fees are much lower basically everywhere else in the world. In fact, in Europe, they're uh, less than one-seventh of the fees here. Almost everywhere else has seen this and done just what you noted is, hey, we, we've got to have some regulation here. This doesn't quite make sense. But the United States has lagged, at least on credit cards. You know, one of the effects that we all learn about when thinking about the lack of competition and cartel-like behavior is that you see pricing, in this case the fee, that is unrelated to the underlying cost. In other words, that someone's extracting a monopoly-like rent. Um, when you say that Europe's costs are like one-seventh of ours, how much is it costing Visa and MasterCard to operate? You know, what are, the, what, what are the costs that they're incurring such that they can justify these high fees here in this country? Well, it is definitely unrelated to the cost. I mean, just to give you a sense, if you look at profit margins and, and breaking this out is a little bit difficult, but Visa and MasterCard's profit margins are around 50%. <laughs> the average retail profit margins are about 2.5%. And oh, by the way, these big money center banks that issue most of the credit cards, their profit margins are, as an industry, the highest of any industry in the United States, 32.5%. So I think that gives you a basic picture of just how unrelated to cost these fees have become. I know that many retailers feel like they're held hostage by this, but you've got a few larger retails, whether it be Costco, who accepts only Visa cards, or something that we saw here in Utah from Smith's Food and Drug. In 2019, there was seven months where they did not accept Visa credit cards. Visa debit, yes. Are these actions by these retailers to help try to leverage the fees they're charged? That's what they're trying to do, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, Smith's is one of almost the only examples in the United States. If you look at it, Amazon tried this in uh, the United Kingdom for a short period of time. Walmart tried it in Canada for a short period of time, but neither of them have tried it in the United States because our market is so locked up. Uh, these, these merchants really are stuck. And even the biggest ones who we think have all this market power 
um, aren't really able to deal with this system really much better than your average small business. And, and, and the, w- w- how is Costco approaching this? I mean, I, was, I remember when Costco sort of said, we're not going to take American Express, we're, only, we're not going to take MasterCard. It was kind of surprising, but they've, they've, they've held with that policy. Uh, are they just big enough that they can pull that off, that people really want to shop there so badly they're willing to find a visa? Well, Costco has a different business model. The important thing to remember about Costco is that they're a club store, right? So people pay them a monthly membership for the privilege of shopping there. Mm-hmm. Most stores aren't able to do that. And Costco, you know, does lots of things. Markets, they have very low prices, et cetera. But a lot of what, you know, what they make and rely on is the fact that they have members paying them that, that membership fee. So it, it's really just kind of its own separate, uh, unique animal that, that is uh, not like, you know, most stores are not going to say, hey, pay me every month for the ability to come buy stuff in my store. I think most of us would look at that and say, you know, no thanks. Nice work if you can get it. Um, let me ask a question about, is there a distinction about the fees that are paid on the credit side versus the debit card side? There are. So um, in 2010, Congress passed some reforms on the debit card side and basically looked at this and said, geez, with debit cards, you're just getting your own money. Um, and when you write a check to get that same money, actually for 100 years uh, with the Federal Reserve Act, we have not allowed these kinds of fees on checks. And so they said, you know what, Fed, do some regulation here on debit cards um, uh, to make it look more like checks. And that's what they've done which has limited the fees, at least for some of the large uh, banks. Okay, so we have this new piece of legislation. We've talked about how trying to slog through the traditional antitrust litigation route uh, gets you caught up in quicksand. What would the new act do, and, and who are, d- does it have true bipartisan support? So what the act would do is relatively straightforward. It would say, hey... If these networks like Visa and MasterCard are going to set the prices for the banks so that there's no competition there, well, let's have at least some competition uh, among the networks so that um, on any given card, you might not just have Visa or MasterCard, but you might have one of these other networks that regularly does this with respect to debit transactions like Pulse or Star or Nice. There's about a dozen of them. So that when the network set prices, they'll have to think, gee, maybe I shouldn't set my price too high. I might lose some business to my competitor, just like all these other businesses think. Um, and, and with respect to your second question, there is bipartisan support both in the House and the Senate. Uh, in the Senate, which was the first bill introduced, it's Senator Durbin of Illinois and Senator Marshall of Kansas, Democrat and Republican respectively, And then in the House, the bill was uh, Congressman Peter Welch of Vermont um, and Congressman Lance Gooden of Texas, again, Democrat and Republican, respectively. So it is very much a bipartisan issue. Let's go back to the explanation of what the bill would do. Um, If I'm walking up to, so assuming the bill is passed, if I walk up to a counter, am I likely to see a sign that other than Visa or MasterCard, or does this facilitating competition among the networks just is it believed that that will create a financial or an economic break on the behavior of visa and mastercard can you flesh it out just a little more 
Absolutely. This is all going to be a essentially a back office type of thing that consumers don't notice. You okay. probably won't see anything different um, at the at the cash register. You might see like a, a second logo on the back of your credit card, like you sometimes see on your debit card today, because debit cards do have two networks at least already. So it won't be much different. It's essentially just like the way your debit card works right now. And then as a retailer, I know that, you know, oftentimes retailers, you know, they shop different processing uh, companies to assist them. Is that where the change is going to happen? Will there be new processing companies coming out or will they just now have more to offer? So it, it will be an offering from the processing company. You're exactly right. So when a, when a store decides, well, which processor should I use? It'll allow those processors to say, hey, we'll help you prioritize which networks you want to send the transaction over to save yourself a little money. One of the downsides I've heard regarding or argument against the act is that it may eliminate rewards and perks that we're used to. So how are current credit card rewards and perks funded? And are we going to see that change if this act was passed? So the bank you get your credit card from funds those rewards. And look, they have a lot of income streams here. (laughs) I I mentioned their profit margins at 32.5%, but they get lots of interest payments and annual fees and late fees and all of that for consumers. And they get these big swipe fees from merchants as well. And all of that funds these rewards. But one important thing to recognize here is There's loyalty rewards of all kinds throughout our economy, right? Lots of retailers give rewards for loyal customers to get them to keep coming back. And those retailers do that on 2.5% profit margins. The idea that banks would no longer give rewards to their loyal customers with 32.5% profit margins doesn't really ring true. So many of the credit cards are, are sponsored, you know, from a consumer's perspective, I see all kinds of loyalty affinity cards. Are those just really sort of layers put on top of a bank when I see a, you know, a so-and-so retailed Visa card? How does that work? You're exactly right. All of those cards are still issued by a bank. Um, the retailer recoups some revenue out of that um, loyalty uh, or affinity card arrangement. Um, and it, and it look, it helps them offset some of the fees they pay in their business all the time. So more and more retailers have tried this route, but universities try it. Lots of organizations try to do it because there's, there's a lot of revenue in this business. And so uh, anybody would love to have a piece of it. I know that when we look at these additional third-party processors coming in, helping within the network, you know, they're not names we're used to. You had mentioned a few like Star, Pulse. Um, We know Visa. We know MasterCard. Is there concern about security now starting to weave these different companies in? It's actually just the opposite. If you look at the Federal Reserve has studied this on debit cards for years, these smaller competitors, um, basically to survive have had to do things better than Visa and MasterCard. And one of the things they do better is prevent fraud. Uh, They've been much more uh, willing to do things like 
urge people to use PIN numbers and protect their transactions that way, and their fraud numbers are much, much lower than Visa and MasterCards. So frankly, we would be better off from that perspective. But the other piece of it is what we know from other areas of the economy, right? Having competitors doesn't just make prices better, it makes services better. If you've got a bunch of restaurants, say, near each other, competing with each other, it's not just that that's going to discipline their pricing, but they're going to try to serve you better so you'll keep coming back. It's the same thing here with these networks. If they have to compete, they're going to try to get better on cybersecurity and fraud and all of those things and go out to retailers and say, hey, use us. It'll be more secure. That's exactly what happened when they started having the two networks on debit cards. And the Star Network actually was the first one that jumped out after that and said, hey, we're going to encrypt all these transactions from end to end, so why don't you use us? Within months of them saying that, everybody in the market said they'd do the same thing. Doug, and, and this is something of a tangent, but we've been talking about cybersecurity a little bit, and you just mentioned encryption from end to end. From a consumer's perspective, we've seen, we see evolution to some extent. We've gone from just a simple number to a mag stripe. Now we see a chip embedded in the card. Are we sort of at the same level as Europe with respect to the security surrounding our credit cards? And what kinds of evolutions would you expect to see in, 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 in future years with respect to security? So we've been slow on security at every stage. I mean, Europe uh, got to the chips in their cards about 20 years before we did, uh, but thankfully we're there, that, that's, that's helpful. Um, and lots of places around the world now with mobile payments where you use your cell phone are doing things with security that are well beyond where we are, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. It is another instance where because we haven't regulated in this area like the rest of the world has, we've been slow. Monopolists don't like to innovate. They just like to keep making money on what they're already doing. So we have a lot of work to do in this country where, frankly, we have the highest rate of fraud on credit cards of any place in the world. And, and it's, not, um, it's not just coincidence that with the highest fees, we have the highest rate of fraud. Those things are related. As we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the Credit Card Competition Act was introduced into Congress in July. Can you give us a sense of what the action and discussions have been so far? And then as well, what the Merchant Payment Coalition is looking to do to keep this on the top of people's lists? There's been a lot of attention to this bill, um, in part because there's a lot of money at stake in this credit card business. We've had a lot of positive reaction on a bipartisan basis. There's quite a bit of support for the bill. Um, now we're starting a brand new Congress, right? So everything uh, kind of resets and, and goes back to the beginning. But we're very optimistic that uh, Congress is going to take a look at this and, and, um, and at some point they will pass this bill. It's just a matter of when, given uh, they've got a lot of priorities with a new Congress. Never one to be cynical about the way in which Washington proceeds through legislation. Can you share a little bit about who's lobbying against it and what the arguments they're giving are? Well, certainly Visa and MasterCard are lobbying against it, and um, the banking industry is lobbying against it. Uh, you know, they're the folks that 
primarily get the financial benefit um, out of all of this. And um, they have, as you mentioned earlier, frankly, we think tried to scare people saying, oh, your rewards will go away. And, and they argue, boy, the credit card system could break. All kind, you know, They argue there could be security problems and fraud, all of these things. Um, and, and what's interesting is doing this with you know, two networks competing with each other on the card is, as I mentioned, exactly what's happened for more than a decade on our debit cards. And nobody's really noticed. The debit cards haven't broken or stopped working in any way. People still use them. In fact, they use them more than they used to to make purchases. Um, it, it, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that um, they try to scare people, but this really isn't that novel a thing. In fact, the credit cards in a lot of places in Europe have two networks, and they work just fine. We've been speaking this morning with the Merchant Payment Coalition Executive Committee member and National Association for Convenience Stores General Counsel, Doug Cantor. Doug, thanks for talking with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Spotender has been providing quality weekly spot cleaning services to the Park City area since 1985. Patrick Fabian recently purchased the business, and he's here this morning in the studio to talk to us. Patrick, welcome to Mountain Money, and let's get into some hot water. Excited to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hot water. Man, that was a good <laughs> intro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Spotender has been in business for some 35 years. How did you come in contact with the business, and how did the opportunity to purchase it come along? Yeah, I've known Gordy for quite some time, and, uh, you know, when the opportunity came about, it was something that I just had to jump on. I had to... Uh, you know, uh, really take advantage of it. it um, I knew it was an opportunity that would provide me to be local, be home, uh, you know, not have to travel. It was uh, just an exciting opportunity, positive cash flow, uh, clients that have just been loyal for 20 plus years, and it's uh, exciting. That's not something you find very often. And the business model is just, uh, it's pretty spectacular. It's, you know, with, uh, uh, the opportunity to just uh, really promote that that loyalty of customers is, is an exciting opportunity. So it was something that I just had to jump jump on. Well, you mentioned some great parts that people look at when they buy a business. Positive cash flow. Yeah. Great customer base. Yeah. What about your background? Have you owned a small business before? I, I have, and I still do. I actually own uh, Core Cleaning Solutions, Core with K. It's a commercial uh, carpet cleaning company. And the why spa tender really just, you know, uh, jumped out at me. It, it allowed me to be home. Uh, core cleaning uh, really took me to multiple states and I had to work, you know, weeks on end out of state. And it was just, uh, it, it didn't allow me to be home. I got a three-year-old son, a beautiful wife, and I just want to spend time with them. And so it's an uh, opportunity that allowed me to be home with them. Good motivation. Yes. So how did you go about learning about spas, the chemistry, the plumbing, all the things? How did you, how did you get that technical background? Sure, sure. Gordy, uh, had been doing it for, for quite some time. I mean, 35 plus years. He, he worked with his dad. Gary started it back in 85. Uh, Gordy took it over in 2005. And so I worked with Gordy for some time and uh, really learned the ins and outs of it. I'm still learning every day. These things are, you know, very intricate and, um, you know, advancing every day. But uh, I also have a CPO certification, which is certified pool and spa operator. Um, you know, so I spent some time learning that and the chemistry of it. And that's the biggest thing. The chemistry allows me to not have to drain and fill the water all the time. You know, being in the mountain, we can all understand the need for conservation, the preservation of water. And so 
you know, hiring someone like me with a CPO certification, I'm able to uh, really keep that water, at, you know, in a crystal clear uh, way so we're not having to waste water. So, so knowing those best practices of, of what to do, keeping up on the industry yes. is definitely something why a service company is definitely preferable for most owners. Uh, it's, you know, having someone that they can trust. But with that, they had known that one family since sure. the company had opened in 1982. Absolutely. How did you start to talk to them about being the new owner? Sure, sure. I, uh, you know, first thing I did working with Gordy, I, I tried to, you know, ring the doorbell uh, every time I'd go out and on the routes and each hot tub, see if people are home, introduce myself, really shake hands and let them know who I was and that I'm local. I think that's the biggest thing uh, that I'm, you know, fully capable. I'm here. I'll answer the phone first ring. I, I try every time. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, I, I, I sent out a heartfelt letter when I first took it over and that really, you know, introduced myself, what I was uh, all about and um, that I had the CPO certification uh, again, that I was a, uh, you know, family man, local, and, and willing to just uh, really be there and responsive for him. How big is your customer base, and how long does it take you to get through the route every week? Sure, sure. It's definitely, it, it's growing. So since I took it over, when I first took it over, it, we had uh, 72 clients. I have grown it uh, about 10 since then, so we're about 82, 83 right now, and looking to grow more. It is just me at the moment. I'm definitely any uh, anyone listening that might be interested in, in a job opportunity, let me know. It's a, it's a fun and exciting experience. Um, but I, I, you know, really... Uh, um, I'm doing the math here. You got yeah. 82 clients. Yeah. You probably want to see each spa, what, at least once a week? At least once a week. So, so that's, that's quite a bit of running around for one person. It so, is. So it you, is. It's definitely a, you know, full-time job. I, I had to work Saturdays. Talk about all the snow that we're getting right now. I'm having to snowshoe to some of these. I broke out the <laughs> snowshoes this week, and uh, it's definitely taken some time. So, you know, looking to possibly hire down the line, but it's been a good opportunity to, to see it through this winter so I can really learn the business, learn my customer base, and provide the best service possible. But it's, uh, it's, it's a full, I work Saturday, this past Saturday, and frequently do. And um, I, my customers understand that they know that I'm on the way and, and uh, trying to do the best I can. And that's all we can do. And Absolutely. it sounds like you're very communicative with your clients. You know, as you've said, you've had previous experience of being a small business owner. Yes. And I would assume besides the needing to break out the snowshoes, you know, you hadn't, <laughs> you know, that's a new experience with this business. But what are some of the things that surprised you that you didn't know necessarily that you were getting into when taking over a hot tub business? Sure. It's, it's a learning curve. I mean, you can run a, a carpet cleaning company like I was. You can run a restaurant. You can run all sorts of business, but everyone's a little different. Uh, some of the, you know, running core had allowed me to, you know, understand the operation of a small business and tax filings and things like that. But it's, uh, you know, the, the learning curve of, us, you know, uh, a spa operator is, is, is different. I mean, um, you're, you're in the snow, you're in the wet and cold, you're constantly getting, uh, water splashed on you. And it's, you know, if you look at my, look at my hands, they're cracked to the <laughs> cracked as all can be. And, uh, but it's, it's been fun. It's been a good learning curve. I, you know, I, I like the loyalty of the customers. It's been fun to speak with them and understand that, uh, you know, that they know that I'm trying to do the best I can. You talked about a learning experience. What have you learned about the, mis the biggest and most common mistakes that you see spa owners make? Sure. 
you know, as a CPO certified uh, person, it's it's amazing how much people think they need to over chemicalize. Water doesn't, you know, uh, first when we get water drawn from our spigot, it comes out properly chemicalized and we can typically add too much uh, chlorine, you know, to bounce the pH too high or too low, the alkalinity and what we look for as a spa operator is, is balance. If we can balance all three of those, pH, alkalinity, and, and chlorine, we can preserve that water. And what I typically see is, is a lot of people over, over chemicalizing. Is there anything with the big snows that we've been receiving that people should be aware of with regards to their spas and hot tubs? The biggest thing I see right now is uh, is the is the ice dams up above. A lot of a lot of hot tubs are are you know sitting right underneath these ice dams, and and I know we all all have seen them. And some of these ice dams have, have come down. I've seen a lot of cracked lids. I've replaced a lot of cracked lids recently, and. Uh, you know, so just spa placement. I know we don't always have the, you know, all the room in the world to place them, but it, be, you know, conscious of that. Um, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Patrick, uh, I'm going to have to ask you, what's the most unusual thing <laughs> you've seen uh, when servicing a spa? Yeah. Oh, boy. Where do I start? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a number of them. I'd say some of the funniest things can be when you show up and the bubbles are cascading out of the... Ooh. Out of the hot tub, sign and number one. Pushing the cover up, and, you know, and I'm what in the heck <laughs> have, have these people, you know, been doing? But it's uh, certainly something that I can I can take care of. It's uh, we we see it all in this line of business. You know, hot Can't tubs imagine. are a luxury thing, and people use them uh, luxuriously. Luxuriously, <laughs> very very well said. So your services include sort of the regular maintenance. That's your regular customers. You can also do repairs and and emergency things. Uh, any brands that you, you that, can you service any brand basically? We do service any brand. Uh, there's a few, uh, you know, of our. our I wouldn't say, you know, well, competitors in town that are more brand specific, but no, Spot Tenders offers uh, repair service and maintenance on any, any brand. Uh, if there's something that I cannot, uh, you know, service, I'll, I'll, you know, sub that out. But for right now, we, we do offer uh, service on any of them. How can our listeners find out more about Spot Tender? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a person who picks up the phone. You know, feel free to call me. Uh, 435-901-9912. Text, call, happy to talk with you. Spotender at gmail.com. Spotender.com uh, is our website. And uh, would, love to, would love to earn your business. That's the biggest thing I can say is, uh, you know, happy to meet with you and shake hands. I, I show up at your house 52 times a year. You know, it's a very intimate thing uh, that that we provide. And so understanding that who's coming into your home or around your home every day is is important. So I'm happy to speak with you and, and let you know that we're here for you. And uh, and text call and, and, yeah, happy to meet with you. We've been talking to Patrick Fabian of Spontender. Patrick, thanks for coming in to join us. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. Do you love Mountain Money? Let us know. Leave us a review.